So, uh, good evening. Uh, tonight is week eight of Biblical Theology Course Seminar, and tonight we're doing the story of sacrifice. And if you're listening on the podcast, I want you to be reminded that you can go to the uh, Grace Church Salida website and find um, PDF download for tonight's session uh, that, so you can follow along. And if you don't know where that is on the web, you can see a link in the show notes here in the podcast where you'll be able to find that. And that's true for all of you that are in the room as well. So if you want to go back and listen or you want to go to the website and uh, get a digital copy of this link, you can do that. Well, it's good to be back with you all. Uh, thanks for coming back. I'm always amazed when people show up. You know, Sunday morning, wow, they're back. They came back after last Sunday. I, Wow, it's just amazing. Um, we had a great trip. I was. That's really funny. Thank you. Jim just asked if I was gone. That's, I don't know. There's just such warmth and love that I feel right now. <laughs> um, if you prayed for us, thank you. We had a great trip. Uh, good roads, great travel. Good to see Ezra. And uh, hard to leave. Wonderful to come back to my church family and hard to leave my marine sun again but anyway that's not why you're here let me pray for us and we'll get into the story of sacrifice father god thank you so much for tonight uh, thank you for shepherd's pie and uh, butter baked dinner rolls and salad and um, god just for people who worked hard to feed us well tonight and thank you for this church family and um, this place where we can meet and study your word together and Father, thank you for Jesus, who is the perfect substitutionary sacrifice that you offered up for us that we might have life and be yours. We pray these things in his name. Amen. What did Christ's sacrifice accomplish? What was he doing on the cross? The answers to these questions and questions like them are at the heart of Christianity. And so you can be sure that the doctrine of Christ's atonement is a high-value target, as my Marine son would say, a high-value target for the Satan. Which means you can be sure that all sorts of controversies will surround the meaning of this central tenet of Christianity because the Satan is a deceiver, he is the father of lies. And part of the way that he can deceive is to traffic in half-truths, which are not the whole truth, and therefore become a not-the-truth. In this way, some of the most compelling answers given to the question, what was Christ doing on the cross, will be compelling and true. They just won't be the whole truth. Did Christ die to demonstrate God's love for us? Yes. But is that all? Once again, here's where the importance of biblical theology shines brightly by helping us understand one part of the very important story of what God is up to in his world in light of the whole story of what God has been up to in his world. So tonight we're going to look at the storyline of sacrifice in the Bible. In order to understand this central moment of Jesus sacrificing his life in biblical history rightly, now remember, the fundamental premise of this course seminar is that the Bible is a single narrative. It is a story that is not fiction because it's the revelation of God unfolding in time and space. 
And we're learning in this course, I hope, (laughs) how to determine what to believe and therefore how to live according to this story. What is biblical theology? That is true, but it's not the answer I'm looking for. What is biblical theology? Do you remember? It helps us to define the story of Jesus. Also true, but not the sentence I'm looking for. Does someone know our sentence for what is biblical theology? Yes. Unified story that leads to Jesus is the easy way, or it is, um, it is a discipline that, as Julie said, helps us experience the Bible as a unified story that leads to Jesus. Now, I think the fun, I, just by way of reminder again on what biblical theology is, I think the fun of biblical theology is going through the same territory again and again and gleaning different things. So... I learned, I thought about this on a 15-hour drive from Salida to Palm, uh, 29 Palms, California, that, right, like there's this territory that we were traveling through, and it was fascinating to me traveling back, just merely turning around and going the opposite direction on the exact same road through the exact same territory, you saw all kinds of things that were different and gleaned all kinds of things that were different. And I would imagine if I did that 25 more times, which God help me, I never hope to do even another time. I think I want to fly over it just to visit Ezra next time. Um, I would continue to glean more and more things about that territory the more that I travel through it. That is the importance of biblical theology, continuing to go through the same territory in the same territory and gleaning new things. Or another way to think about this, that what struck me is um, to do that so that you know the territory in such a way. I've gone for hikes in snowshoeing with Ron Dobson, one of our elders here. He was a wildlife officer for the state of Colorado for over 30 years. I don't know that there's another person in this area who knows this area as well as Ron Dobson knows this area. Yes, Paul, you would be another one. Actually, yes, Forestry Service. Am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah. So Paul would be another one. When I go through a ter- this territory with Ron Dobson, it's like there's this walking encyclopedia, Discovery Channel, David Attenborough narrator that's with me, and there's constantly stories, and I'm learning something about the plants, and the animals, and the rocks, and the water, and the sky, and the mountains, and because he's been through the territory so much, and it makes me want to know this place the way that he knows this place, because he's been through it that much. That's how I want to know the Bible. I want to experience the Bible that way. I want to go through the territory so much. And then I want to hang around people who know the Bible that way, who can take me into this territory and show me things that even though I've been through that same territory, I've never seen before that are abundantly obvious to the most casual observer. Imagine, huh? Huh? Imagine some... Most people know what that refers to. (laughs) Imagine being that way with the Bible. I I hope that's why you're here again as we keep going through. So at at the heart of the story of the Bible is the story of sacrifice. 
Ironically, this story in the Bible begins with a colossal failure of self-denial. When Adam and Eve indulged their desire to be God's equal, they plunged themselves and the rest of us into a world under God's curse, a world in which sacrifice would now be the order of the day. For as the narrative of scripture unfolds, the need, nature, and effects of sacrifice are slowly revealed. Slowly revealed. But what do we call that? Progressive. You guys make me so happy. So tonight we're going to divide the storyline of the Bible into six episodes that will progressively reveal this story. Episode one, Adam and Eve and their kids and their actions, their lives are the occasion for the introduction of the necessity of sacrifice into the story. In Genesis 3, 21, on the heels of God's pronouncement of the curse because of covenant disobedience, we read, Yahweh God made clothing for skins from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. Here, God provides animal skins for Adam and Eve, which displays an important link that's going to mark sacrifice, the anticipation that death and sin are physically linked. And note, who provides the sacrifice here in Genesis 3? In Genesis 4, we read of their boys, Cain and Abel, and their offer of sacrifices to Yahweh. Turn to Genesis 4. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 8. The man was intimate with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. She said, I have made a male child with Yahweh's help. She also gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel became a shepherd of flocks, but Cain worked the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as an offering to Yahweh. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Yahweh had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then Yahweh said to Cain, Why are you furious, and why do you look despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Yeah. Cain's the first one to bring the offering, and then Abel. Yep. At least in the reading. Yeah. Is there yeah. A there so, I, I, yes and no. So we're going to get to it, um, but but I but I I want to answer it in part, and then we'll answer it more in full. I do not think the issue is the offerings. I think the issue is the heart behind the offerings, and that's part of what we're going to progressively see in the sacrificial storyline. Um, it's interesting, I, I had this moment of uh, sheer panic at about 5 p.m. Um, because I, I want to know all the answers to every question that you'll possibly conceivably ask. It's just how I'm wired. I, I don't want to not know the answer. Um, and, the, and, and part of the interesting thing here that I don't have all the answer to is, and I'm going to get to this as well, there, there's this these really rare moments of, you know, I think it's 10, 11, 12 times where we see sacrifice mentioned before Leviticus in the scriptures. And at 5 p.m. I thought, 
I don't really know why that is. Like, it, it struck me as I got through, you know, up to about nine or ten, like, he's never really given, given instructions. It's just there. It's just there. Why are we offering burnt offerings? Why are we offering... And I thought, have I missed something in the text? <laughs> Is there an answer to that question? Was there some instruction before the Levitical? I, I don't think there was. So there is some sense of, of mystery. Like, we're not told. What, why did they even do that? Like, in the deal right here. Anyway, I'm going to answer your question more fully. Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. There is no mention of sin here in the text. There is no explicit mention of blood, though it is there implicitly, right? Because I'm assuming that he had to slaughter the firstborn of the flock to get the fat portions that he's offering up. But there's no explicit mention of sin or blood with these sacrifices. The Bible calls them an offering or a gift. And the idea, I think, being one of tribute to a king and an example of submission to his rule. What we can pick up at this point in the story is one of the great principles of sacrifice, much emphasized by the prophets, the psalmists, and here's the answer to your question, Kyle, and wisdom writers. That is, the inward disposition of worshipers must be right if their outward gift is to be accepted. Cain's furious reaction suggests that the offering was rejected because of sin in his heart, not the nature of his offering. The Bible makes it clear that God had rejected Cain's offering because of his wicked lifestyle. 1 John 3, 12. Cain's deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The animal-like description of sin as crouching is reused in Genesis 49, 9 to describe a lion. The parallel use of desire in this verse in 3.16 suggests that sin wishes to be as intimate with humanity as a woman is with her husband, and the only way to avoid this is to be its master and not its companion. There's a lot of language around desire going on in this part of the story. Therefore, we see, again, at this part in the story, the reason that sacrifice is required is because sin, I think because sin is a reality. Let, let's see that hopefully continue to be revealed. Episode two, the next sacrifice recorded is in Genesis eight. This comes on the heels of another pronouncement of God, another curse, due to the massive failure of humanity to live as image bearers of God, the flood, where God sought to wipe the earth clean. Let's pick it up in the story where Noah and his family are departing from the ark that had kept them and a whole raft of creation safe from judgment. Genesis 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to Yahweh. He took some of... Now, again, unless someone can help me here, I... I don't have any instruction that I'm aware of before Genesis 8.20. Here's how you build an altar. Here's exactly how it should look and what it should look like and why you should have an altar on which you're offering this clean animal and every kind of clean bird. And he offered those things as burnt offerings on the altar. And when Yahweh smelled the pleasing aroma, so it's pleasing to God, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. And I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done here. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will not cease. And then, and I'll just give you the, the beginning of the Noahic covenant. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. 
However, as we've seen in our repeated traveling through this story, noting different layers and angles and subplots, the sin that prompted God's judgment remained in the hearts of Noah and his children, even as God promises to never again destroy all humanity, right? Requiring along with it that this new name, this new theme, sacrifice, has to continue along with the reality of that sin in the human heart. So that we see that altars are recorded as having been built and sacrifices having been offered by Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These gifts also forming a basis for prayer, for calling on the name of Yahweh and all the rest. Episode three, God not only promises to never again destroy humanity, but he goes much further positively. So negatively, I won't destroy you. Positively, I'm going to bless all nations. We see this in his promise to Abraham to supply a seed who would be a blessing to all, which is fascinating, right? Because the Bible's next sacrifice in the story of sacrifice is seemingly at odds with the promise that your seed will bless all the nations. Genesis 22, turn there. Verse one. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he answered. Take your son, he said, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, <laughs> through whom the promise is supposed to come, go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. When God speaks these shocking words concerning Abraham's seed, remarkably to us, I think most of us, maybe especially the first time we heard this story, maybe, by faith, Abraham <laughs> obeys. Once again, the idea seems to be that of tribute, of the rule of a king, it all belongs to God. He has the right to take it back, even if he's given it to you by promise. Verse three, so Abraham got up early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his young men and his son Isaac. He split wood for a burnt offering. He set out to go to the place that God had told him about. Again, I just remembering, I think this was maybe when I was going through the manuscript again. I <laughs> at five o'clock when I had the, the tents like, was, am I, how did he know to split the wood and to, build the altar and on the third day Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance and Abraham said to his young men stay here with the donkey the boy and I will go over there to worship and then we'll come back to you Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and he laid it on his son Isaac in his hand he took the fire and the knife and the two of them walked on together Isaac spoke to his father Abraham and said my father and he replied here I am my son Isaac said the fire and the wood are here but where is the lamb for the burnt offering Abraham answered, God himself will provide. Underline that. God himself will provide. The lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. When they arrived at the place that God had told them about, Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood. He bound his son Isaac and placed him on the altar on top of the wood. He reached out and took the knife to slaughter his own son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! He replied, here I am. Then he said, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your only son from me. Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that place Yahweh will provide. So today it is said, it will be provided on Yahweh's mountain. 
Then the angel of Yahweh called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, this is Yahweh's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. Abraham went back to his young men and they got up and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham settled in Beersheba. At the last second, God stops Abraham. The test of his devotion is over, but not the sacrifice. God provides a ram to be sacrificed in Isaac's place, showing us that God will accept a substitute. What's more, he will even provide that substitute, which is in keeping with his actions thus far, thus far to provide offerings. Genesis 3.21, I he clothed him. And we're going to see that in Leviticus 17. I have appointed. I have given to you. Episode four. <clears throat> Raise your hand. Stop me. Shout out like Kyle did if you have a question. Brian. Um, I, my question is, um, this, in my mind, there's a kind of a parallel here between Abraham and Noah. Abraham's son is Isaac and, and Noah. Um, I guess my, my question is, So, so why, why didn't, so the question that Brian has is why didn't, uh, why didn't God leave Ham off the boat? In, in your connection there is, so you said, because that's how sin kind of came back. Yeah, so I, what I would say is, so number one, I don't have tremendous thoughts and probably the thoughts that you have because you're asking the question. Number two, I, while there may be some truth in how you're saying that there's a certain kind of sin that kind of came through Ham's line, I, I mean, Noah immediately gets off and gets drunk yeah. and, and starts to cause problems. So it's just, it's immediate, the problem is there. And so I don't, I don't think, yeah, I, I think... I think sin remains because humanity remains in a state that hasn't been fully redeemed and saved. And, and so that, that would be my immediate response to that. I, you know, and as far as like at the very high level question, why didn't he choose to leave him off? <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. But then it, the question is, well, okay, well, of all the sons, Shem and Japheth seem to be the least bad compared to Ham. But still bad. So, least, yeah. so, well, so, if, so if, if the goal wasn't to get rid of sin, or, then what, what was the goal? Wasn't the goal to kind of get rid of all the sin that was happening? 
No, I think, I think yes and no in the answer to the question, was it the goal? Um, I think it's very much the reason, when, when you read the account of the story, it's very much my, the, this creation that I have created has become polluted by the humanity that I have created. And, the only, and, and we just know that water so often in, in this larger story as I understand the scriptures, is a sign of purification from defilement. And so the end, it's a sign also in, in Jewish thinking of judgment. And so those two things are coming together, like this is how I will judge the earth and it's how I will, will clean my earth. As far as, like, I mean, the, I, I feel like it's kind of almost like Russian nesting dolls, the question of why did God, why did God? I, I can keep pressing that back all the way to why did God allow Lucifer to fall from the heavens metaphorically in the very beginning and the only the only high level answer that I have to all of that is in his sovereignty and as the author of the story in in God's design and thinking this was the way that he could get maximum glory for himself as a being who didn't need any of it at all to begin with. Perfect unity, perfect harmony, perfect fellowship in this Trinitarian God. The over, you know, Edwards talks about, this was the overflow of his affections. We're, we're like these, these, you know, when you see a fountain and, and the water's going up and you see through the sun, there's like all this little misting. Like if the Trinity is the fountainhead, we're like these little droplets of mist that are just this expression of the glory of who he is. And in the way that he's designed the story, this is a way for him to get maximal glory. I mean, he could have stopped it, like, in one sense, like you're saying, at any time. And he will. <laughs> Back to our conversation last time in Revelation. So, um, yeah, that's what I have so far for that. We should, let's keep plowing forward. Good question. It's a good question. Episode four. Many of us are familiar with the next step that happens in this progression in the story of Passover. We read about it in Exodus 12, where we find Pharaoh refusing to release the Israelites, even as God promises to strike down the firstborn male of every creature in Egypt. But Yahweh, in that promise, also promises to spare the firstborn of Israel if they take a year old lamb without defect, sacrifice it, and smear its blood on the doorframe of their houses. God says that he will see the blood of the sacrifice pass over their homes and spare them the judgment that Egypt, and in particular its gods, have faced. What's more, God says this sacrificial meal will be a sign that sets them apart. As God makes a distinction between Israel and the rest of the world, consecrating them as his special people. That very night, Israel is spared because of the sacrifice. And I've always loved this bit at the end of the story um, that I didn't see until... I think it was when I was in seminary, um, explaining the meaning of everything that we've just watched unfold when you, when you read this story. Exodus 12, 24 to 28. Keep this command permanently as a statute for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that Yahweh will give you, as he promised, you are to observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, I just love, I, I love that this is how God operates. Like he knows that and he gives parents, like your kids are going to ask you why you're doing this. Here's what you should tell them. 
It is the Passover sacrifice to Yahweh. For he passed over the house of the Israelites in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and he spared our homes. And then it's just so, you guys, it's so beautiful. The people knelt low and worshipped. Why, why do you think they did that? Because it's beautiful. It's beautiful what he's done. They've been spared. And the Israelites went, and they did this. They did just as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron. And so we see this building on the sacrifice of the animal for clothing, the substitute for Abraham, the Passover lamb. We see how the sacrifice is a display. The sacrifice, this thing that we're seeing, is a display of God's magnificent grace. Why would I say that? Why is sacrifice, as we've seen thus far, a display of God's grace? Because he's making a way. He's making a way to apply his promises to his people. He's making a way for them to receive the covering that they need in the face of his just and right judgment. And not to merely be covered, but to be... See, it's not, it's not enough that they're covered a cover-up. It was a cover-up. Does a cover-up take care of the issue of what's being covered in that kind of common parlance? It doesn't. There's still dirt there and scandal and grime and we need to be cleaned and purified. Thus, episode five. In the story thus far, there have been less than a dozen instances of sacrifice recorded in the Bible. It doesn't seem to be a major theme. But then the theme of sacrifice goes into hyperdrive with the giving of the law. An entire book of the Bible, Leviticus, is largely given over to the detailing of all the different sacrifices that Israel is to offer God. There are fellowship offerings and whole burnt offerings and grain offerings and purification offerings and on and on and on. We could list all of them. The most important of which, it seems, are sacrifices to atone for sin and guilt. To atone, which means to be cleansed from defilement, particularly through the vicarious act of another on one's behalf so that two parties may come together. And here it is in Leviticus that we see some of the other pieces we've already seen begin to converge. Only clean animals without defect can be sacrificed. Every firstborn Israelite who represents the nation as a whole must be redeemed with a sacrificial substitute. Prominent is the taking of life, the shedding of a blameless victim's blood. The idea of a substitution continues its prominence. We're told that if anyone bring, brings a sacrifice, Leviticus 1.4, he is to lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering so it can be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. It's a way of saying, this sacrifice stands for me, that what is about to happen to it should be happening to me and it's taking my place. These sacrifices now begin and end every single day in God's temple, presented by priests who serve as intermediaries between God and his sinful people. There are additional sacrifices that mark the beginning of each week, each month, each season. And at the pinnacle of this entire system of sacrifice is, you know, what? The Day of Atonement. The high priest alone who takes the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies sprinkles blood on the mercy seat, which is the symbolic throne of God to make atonement for his own sins and the sins of the people. So 
Everything that we've seen is building to this point in Leviticus, getting here in Leviticus to kind of climax. We see this progression, right, happening, things building, and then the progression just stops. No more progression in the idea or practice of sacrifice and atonement. Year follows year, decade follows decade, century follows century, and nothing is changed. No new sacrifices are introduced, and the old ones are just endlessly repeated. And it is in this endless repetition that the problem is revealed. The sacrifices aren't getting rid of sin. In fact, they increasingly become a nauseating reminder of just how sinful the people remain. Repentance, right? What does God desire? A contrite heart, oh God, you do not despise. He desires repentance, not ritual. He wanted their hearts in the midst of the sacrifices. But over time, what we see happens in Israel was that for so many of the people, repentance had vanished and all that remained was the ritual. We hear this in the condemnatory proclamations of the prophets, calling people to account. For hearts, Isaiah 29, your hearts are far from me. We see it as they speak God's words, as the prophets speak God's words, that he is tired of their empty sacrifices and rituals, which in God's eyes have become, he says these words are just shocking. Your sacrifices are useless and detestable to me. And so God banishes the nation to exile, which means what? The shocking and absolutely devastating reality of being banished to exile is no access to the temple. So therefore, no access to the sacrifices. And when God brings them back from Babylon and the temple is rebuilt, yes, the sacrifices resume, but the people have not changed. Which maybe that feels like a connection back to the Noahic, like you came off the ark and you didn't change. I sent you into exile, you didn't change. The Holy of Holies is empty. There's no mercy seat for the high priest to appear before and plead for forgiveness. There's just an empty room. Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, declares, I wish one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would no longer kindle a useless fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says Yahweh of heaven's armies, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Those would be incredibly chilling words. There is no, yeah, yeah, yeah. There is no sacrifice that you will accept. Which means, if you're, if you're processing that as a Jew, I'm just as exposed as any Egyptian was exposed to your wrath and judgment. I, I don't have a covering. I don't have a way of escape. The practice of sacrifice in the life of Israel came under intense criticism from the prophets, beginning with the anonymous prophet of 1 Samuel 2, 27 to 36, who denounced the profane behavior of the sons of Eli. The prophets denounced the nation's prevalent syncretism. Samuel told Saul that sacrifice, even when offered to Yahweh, is far less important than obedience and is a mere formality without it. First Samuel 15, Samuel said, does Yahweh take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much in, as in obeying Yahweh? 
Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination. Defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has rejected you as king. The other prophets speak similarly. Multitudes of sacrifices combined with a wicked life are an abomination to Yahweh. We have... Go ahead. I think that's a fair point. Isaiah 1, 11. What are all your sacrifices to me, asked Yahweh? I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed cattle. I have no desire for the blood of bulls, lambs, or male goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires this from you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing useless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Right? That's so opposite to the pleasing. There was a pleasing aroma. It's, a, it's like... It's clogging my nostrils. You're making me sick. New moons and Sabbaths, the calling of solemn assemblies. I cannot stand iniquity with a festival. I hate your new moons and prescribed festivals. In which you could go, wait a second, you prescribed them. Yeah, but you're not carrying them out the way that I want you to. They have become a burden to me. I am tired of putting up with them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will refuse to look at you. Even if you offer countless prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Cleanse yourselves. Remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come. It's... It's like there's all this anger and fury and then the beauty of it is even in that anger, it's almost like, it's it's so beautiful. Like it's almost like he realizes, I don't want to talk to you this way. Like I don't want, you're my children. I don't want to destroy you. Come, let's settle this, says Yahweh. Though your sins are scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. Though they are crimson red, they will be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. He's he's such a good God to plea with them this way. The wise man says the same thing in Proverbs 15, 21, 27. It's not surprising, therefore, to see in the period of the monarchy the beginning of the reinterpretation of sacrificial language in terms of attitudes and acts of devotion. The psalmist speak of thanksgiving and contrition as acceptable sacrifices. Isaiah speaks of the return exiles being brought back by their captors as an offering to the Lord. You yourself, you're the offering that I want. Episode six. And then something incredible happens in the story. God acts. in the same way that he did with Abraham. And he will not accept a sacrifice from the hands of sinful people. And so he provides one instead. 
And in an act that now becomes the story, that Abraham and Isaac's story was foreshadowing, God the Father sends his son. As the ram caught in the thicket, as the Passover lamb who will cover the people from the angel of death, a son who will take on flesh and blood so that he can offer that flesh and that blood because the life is in the blood as the offering on the altar of the cross. It's just so beautiful. As a substitute for me, for you, to take away and atone for the sin of all humanity, to remove wrath and bring cleansing and cover iniquity and provide forgiveness at the cross. The Messiah fulfilled everything that the Old Testament sacrifices meant and accomplished what they were unable to do. Through his blood, he makes atonement for the sins of his people and reconciles us to God. And to demonstrate that God accepts this sacrifice from Jesus, he raises him from the dead, vindicating his son. So that starting now and continuing on into eternity, whoever repents of their sins and places their faith in Messiah's sacrifice is redeemed from slavery to sin and is free to live a life of tribute and praise to God. I love when you guys woohoo. <laughs> it's just amazing. It's just amazing. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. That is the story of sacrifice in God's story. And so now what I want to do is explore some of the patterns that we see, right? These are our tools. So we want to see patterns in the story. And then I want to glean some doctrine from the storyline. Okay, so be, in, just as a reminder, for the last weeks that we've been in this class, we've been saying that we don't learn what the Bible has to teach us simply by pulling out our favorite proof text, right? What's our little ditty? That was a really good try. <laughs> Bless you, sister. You put yourself right out there. It's a pretext for a pretext. I feel like the lawyer does really, like it's easy for you to grab onto that one. <laughs> Perfect, Lisa. So we don't learn simply with word studies. Is part of how you can think about that little sentence. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. We learn from how the story is put together. So the first pattern to notice in the story of sacrifice is the pattern itself, the pattern of sacrifice. It's, it's kind of like, in itself, it's, it's a form of typology. There's, there's a type of something and then another and then another and so that God is telling us to fix our attention on this. The shedding of blood isn't something that we think about much today, but the Bible is obviously very interested in it. Why? What's, what's it saying? It's wanting to, us to see a progressive revelation happening with these types. First with Abel, it was the idea of thanksgiving. Then with Noah, it was thanksgiving and pleasing Yahweh. Then with Abraham and Isaac, it was all of that, but also the expressing of utter devotion and the idea of a substitute. Then with the Passover and the spotless lamb, it was the representative role of the firstborn son and the distinguishing of a people. Then in Leviticus, it's a clear emphasis on atoning for sin. So it's, it's being repeated and built upon. It's, there's a progressive revelation. 
There is discontinuity that we see here, especially when we get to Christ. The Levitical sacrifices were repeated endlessly, but Messiah is sacrificed how many times? Once. Once. The Levitical sacrifices were for one ethnic nation, but Messiah is sacrificed for all nations. Another pattern for us to notice is that of promise and fulfillment. There are many promises that we could highlight throughout this storyline, but think of the promise to Abraham that his seed would be a blessing to all the nations. And we know that that promise is fulfilled in the Messiah. Like Isaac to be sacrificed and to be a blessing, it is the Messiah who is sacrificed, fulfilling the promise to Abraham, not just through his birth and ministry as a genealogical descendant, but especially through his sacrifice. Therefore, the cross of Christ and not merely his person is a blessing to all nations and is at the heart of the good news. Okay, so some doctrines that we could draw for us. What, what, what's the purpose in pointing out these patterns and seeing this storyline? It is that they are instrumental in helping us to understand who Jesus is, right? A unified story that leads to or points to Messiah. So these things are instrumental in helping us understand who Jesus is, what his sacrifice accomplished, and why we need his sacrifice. All of these patterns are pointing to him and helping us understand him. So over the years, some have suggested that Christ died primarily as an example for us, to inspire us to greater love for God. Others have suggested that Christ's death was merely a demonstration of God's hatred for sin. Others, a demonstration of his compassion and identification with sinners. These days, some are saying Jesus died simply to declare victory over the fallen authorities of sin and death. And we can point to verses in the New Testament which say all of those things, that he died as an example to demonstrate God's hatred for sin, to declare victory over sin and death. And while those are all part of why Jesus died, and they help us understand what's wrong with you and me, we do need someone to set a good example. Yes, that's true. We do need someone to identify with us in weakness and to defeat sin and death. Yes, that is true. But is that primarily what we're to take from this story of sacrifice and to understand about the sacrifice of the Messiah? I don't think so. So I want to give you, I can't even remember. I think I have eight, eight things. It's on your handout. How many do I have? Eight. Hey. Number one, the fundamental problem with the world and humanity is our sin and the guilt it incurs. Which means the fundamental problem with the world is not death, but sin and the broken relationship that it creates. Sin leading to our guilt before a holy God standing under his wrath and what is to be done about that. Which as we have seen, this is where sacrifice comes in. Before the fall, Adam and Eve had no need to kill an animal and offer it to God. They were in a right relationship with a good and holy God. But the moment sin entered in, Adam and Eve's lives were forfeit because of sin and guilt. Romans 6.23, echoing God's words to Adam in Genesis 2.16 and 17, tell us the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in who? In Messiah, Jesus our king. So here is the problem that sacrifice in the Bible is designed to solve. Our need is not just an inspiring example of love. It's not just a victory over the powers of darkness. It's not just a victory over death. Rather, there is an eternal and holy God justly angry with us for our rebellion, and we need a way to escape the penalty of his justice because we cannot ever hope to bear that penalty ourselves. According to scripture, what we need is a sacrifice. And what particular kind of sacrifice do we need? Number two, 
The Messiah came to die as a substitute. We saw God provide a ram as a substitute in the place of Isaac. We saw the Passover lamb slain in the place of the firstborn. And we see it in the book of Leviticus as a person lays his or her hand on the animal. We need a substitutionary sacrifice versus sacrificing ourselves, right? That will happen. That could be the way that the sacrifice happens. But what do we call that? No. Hell. It's the only way that you can sacrifice yourself to pay for your sin. It's hell. And it, and it doesn't actually even, right? It's, it's just the consequence of not having someone substitute for you. Number three, the Messiah came to die as a penal substitute. Penal substitutionary atonement, which has come under fair amount of attack over the last 10 years or so. The victim receives the penalty I deserved. The sacrificial victim doesn't just die. He is judicially executed in my place. Both the Old and New Testament are clear that on the cross, the Messiah died as a substitute, taking the punishment that his people deserved. Just as Isaiah foretold, speaking of the Messiah, he says in Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, Yet he himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned our own way and Yahweh has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Jesus said in John 10, 11 to 16, listen to your king. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. Little free parenthesis application of this verse. This is why you didn't hire me. You don't hire elders. You don't hire pastors. Because hired hands don't care about you. And when it gets hard, then they'll just run. Right? Peter says, you are, when your shepherd, the chief shepherd, you are to shepherd the flock of God that has been given to you. Connect that to John. Peter here listening to Jesus in John 10. I am called... To sometimes, Paul is called as an elder here. Our elders are called to sometimes have a crook in our hands and smack you upside the head when you need it, to encourage you, and sometimes to lay down our lives for you. Because that's what our chief shepherd did. If I was your hireling, but you, guys, you don't, want a, you don't want hirelings leading you. Okay, close parentheses. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he's a hired hand. He doesn't care about the sheep, but I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. And just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen, and I must bring them also, and they will listen, and they will listen to my voice. And then there will be one flock and one shepherd. 
Jesus did not understand his own death as an example or merely as a demonstration or even as an open-ended general death with reference to nobody in particular. No, Jesus laid down his life as an effective sacrifice, a penal substitute for a specific and particular herd of sheep, flock of sheep. Paul says in Romans 3, 25, 26, why did that happen? God presented him as the mercy seat, the place of atonement by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God had passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. God's the one who does this, not me. Which takes us to the next thing being accomplished. Number four, the Messiah came to die as a penal substitute to propitiate the wrath of God. Don't you love learning theological words? <laughs> Messiah's sacrifice propitiates God's wrath. Does anybody know what that word means? Satisfy. Satisfy. Yeah, that's a good way to say that. Satisfies. Simply that by enduring the penalty our sin deserves, an effective sacrifice actually satisfies the demands of justice and therefore removes the reason for God's wrath against the sinner. If you think back to the story of sacrifice, the repeated references that we see throughout Leviticus is that the aroma of a burning sacrifice was pleasing to Yahweh. It satisfied him. And Jesus' close friend, John, saw that connection through the story of sacrifice. 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children... I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But <laughs> I know you're going to. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, the Messiah, the Righteous One. He himself is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. Number five, the Messiah came to die as a penal substitute to propitiate the wrath of God and to make atonement for his people. This turning aside of God's wrath leads to the other effective sacrifice. An effective sacrifice atones for sin. So that's what we saw at the high point of the Jewish year being the day of atonement. Hebrew word for atone means to cover. The English word simply means to be at one with. So a sacrifice, you could say, covers our sin and makes us at one with God. Having satisfied God's wrath, the sacrifice obtains forgiveness for the sin that caused the wrath in the first place and it removes the guilt that the sin had incurred. So, is there a distinction then between those two concepts of propitiation and atonement? Or are they synonyms? I think that they are overlapping ideas. Um, because I, I don't feel like I want to completely separate them because they're so close in what's happening. I think of it like in, Joe, the order uh, of salvation, you know, and we, we see all these steps that happen in salvation and you, and you want to, you know, so the Holy Spirit comes and there's this, um, uh, there's this external call of the good news. Then there's an effectual call of the Holy Spirit. There's I'm being made alive by the Holy Spirit so I can respond in faith, I see Jesus is beautiful. I become justified. Uh, I become sanctified. I'm going to be glorified. Like, how much time is, 
they're, they're like, I think there's nanoseconds that are probably happening once the effectual call occurs. And so I think they're overlapping ideas of what are happening, but there's also distinction. There's also distinction. Um, does that help? Doesn't feel very helpful, but. <laughs> and, and why I want to hold the distinction is because I think, I think that's where we see the beauty of all the things that God is doing in, in this case, in a sacrifice. I think, I think the, what I get so passionate about and have so much joy in studying and reading the, reading the Bible is, um, Paul and I were talking about this yesterday morning when we we're getting ready for the Sunday gathering that's coming. And just um, when I came away from the conversation with him about Romans 7, one of the things I was reminded of is, what 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 is some wag said that the the Bible is like a, you know an eight year old child can play it's shallow enough that you can play in the uh, an eight year old child can play in the waters and it's deep enough that an elephant can can swim in it that that there are these these things that I can just understand kind of basic here's a basic understanding and that's good as far as it goes but then when I start digging in and I see kind of these overlapping and all the things that are happening that God is doing my marvel increases, my wonder increases, my awe increases, my worship increases, my praise increases because I see the depths of what God is doing. Um, good question. Number six, the Messiah came to die as an effective, so that's the word that's getting added there from number five, as an effective penal substitute to propitiate the wrath of God and make atonement for his people. This is... If you want to understand, before you, if you have trouble when you come to Leviticus in your Bible reading plan, and you're just like, oh, please, God, do I have to read this? I know I want to read the whole Bible, but do I have to read Leviticus? Go and read Hebrews, then come back and read Leviticus. Because that's where we see, Hebrews is so helpful at explaining the system of the Old Covenant in comparison to what the new has brought. Well, the Levitical sacrifice, and, this, and that, this is an example of that. It's an effective penal substitute. While the Levitical sacrifices were repeated endlessly, the book of Hebrews draws our attention to the fact that the Messiah was sacrificed once. I have loved when I've read Hebrews to see this truth. Hebrews 7.27, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day as the high priest did, first for their own sins and then for those of the people, right? We saw that, Day of Atonement. He did this once for all time when he offered himself. And again in chapter 9, verse 12, Messiah entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Once again in 9.26, otherwise he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. But now he has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Paul says in Galatians 3, 24 and 26 that the whole sacrificial system had been this picture, this guardian that was meant to lead us to Christ and now that we're with Messiah, it's not needed anymore. When I get to the end of the rafting adventure at Noah's Ark, I don't take the guide home with me. <laughs> you got me safely there. See you next time. Don't need that any that guide anymore. The picture is no longer needed. As the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 1 through 4, since the law was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the reality itself of those things, 
It can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, wouldn't they have stopped being offered since the worshipers purified once and for all would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifices, there is this reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Which then, I keep coming back to you, Brian, because it makes me think of that question. You think, well, then why did you do that? And his answer is, Maybe you thought that was a waste of a few centuries, but I wanted to build up. I, I think the father would say, I wanted to build up an expectation for my son. I wanted pent up desire and longing so that when he came, there would be a greater sense of satisfaction at who he is. For every priest, 10, Hebrews 10, 11, stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which could never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. And he is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. <laughs> Isn't that just awesome? That's our king. He's just waiting. Oh, I can't wait until, like he's just sitting there like, I can't wait until the father says, go get him. Go get him. Let's wrap this thing up. Let's go. Yes. <laughs> and we're all like, yes, please. <laughs> For by one offering. Listen to this. Paul, this is so much our conversation yesterday. Verse 14. By one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. If I was going to say that in my own words, I would say God had to make you perfect before he could make you good. Stand, you all don't know what conversation Paul and I were having, so let me tell it to you. Don't stand defeated as a disciple of Jesus on the defense. Stand in victory. I, I have been perfected forever in Jesus and this one offering. No other offerings are necessary. And now that I'm perfect, he's making me good who are being sanctified. The good news, friends, is that on the cross, Jesus the Messiah accomplished salvation. He said it is finished. He turned aside God's wrath. He made atonement for sin. And the only question is, it's the only question that you should be asking tonight. Did he do it for you? Did he do it for you? Jesus said that he gave his life as a ransom for many. Are you among the many? Jesus said that he lays down his life for his sheep. Who are his sheep? Those who hear his voice. And when they hear his voice, respond to his call. John put it this way in John 3:36: the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God will remain on him. Friends, the Messiah has accomplished the redemption for every person who will listen to him and heed his call. The only question is, are you listening? Which leads us to the final thing to consider today, and that's the end of sacrifice in the Bible. In a story that is so saturated with the repeated shedding of 
sacrificial blood. It cannot escape attention. That sacrifice comes to an end at the cross. There is no further or other sacrifice to be given to pay for our sins before a holy God. You got to hear and believe that. We are saved by faith alone. This is why the Bible talks about the necessity of faith in a crucified and risen Messiah for salvation. It's not that faith itself is saving, right? This is what we've learned from Paul. Rather, as we have said in studying Paul, it is the object of our faith that saves. And in this story of sacrifice, faith is the way that you acknowledge the Messiah as your substitute. Like the Old Testament Israelite who laid his hands on the victim, so faith, right, we lay our hands on the Messiah. And we trust that when Messiah died on the cross, he died in my place, he died in your place for you. It is not enough to be born in a Christian family or to be baptized or to go to church or anything else. It is only by faith that you must believe that the Messiah was sacrificed for you. We are saved by faith alone in the Messiah alone. It's not just that he's the best example of a substitute. He's the only possible substitute. For no one else ever lived a perfect life. It's not just that his death approximates the judgment we deserve. It's that on the cross, the Messiah endured the Holocaust of God's wrath against our sin, and he exhausted it. He is the last sacrifice. Because in reality, he is the first and only sacrifice that ever has or ever will be made that was effective to take care of sin. And I want you to note and glory in and rejoice about and sing the praises of and explode in thanksgiving for the exclusivity of the sacrifice of your king. You know what this night should do for you? It should set you loose on Sunday morning when Paul and Julie and that team gets up on that stage. I better see you singing. Oh my goodness. It's Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is. And there will be no second chances after death. There is no alternative means of entry into the presence of God and a new heavens and a new earth. There is only one sacrifice that reconciles sinners to God and so there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. And what is that name? Jesus. Yes. So, no other sacrifice is needed, and yet one more sacrifice is needed. It's not one that gains salvation or adds anything to salvation. It's one that follows salvation. When Jesus calls a person, he calls him to do what? Pick up his cross and follow him. Paul uses language like this when he says in Romans 12 that as Christians we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. What does that mean? Before the fall, Adam and Eve were made in the image of God. Their lives were a tribute, an offering of praise back to God. Ultimately, the end or purpose of Messiah's sacrifice is that we might offer our lives back to God as sacrifices, not in payment for sin, but as living sacrifices to the praise, Paul says elsewhere, right? To the praise of his glorious grace. So the question is, as a follower of Jesus, do you struggle with sacrifice? Do you find it hard to lay down your life in love for others, to love your enemy, to return kindness for insults, to let go of the riches of this world for the treasure of heaven? 
Consider that in all of that sacrifice, you are being conformed to the image of the Messiah who himself was a living sacrifice. Jesus, Messiah, Christian, whose death was planned by God from before the foundation of the world will for all eternity bear in glory the marks of his sacrifice. And more than anything else, it will be those marks that are the object of our eternal wonder and adoration and praise, for they are the marks of our salvation. I feel like I might just be like Thomas and just, can I just put my finger in there? I can't believe what you did. Can you imagine what that's going to be like to see him? To see those marks on his hands and in his side. And that is the image into which you are being conformed. That is the destiny to which you are heading. An eternally living sacrifice of praise to the one who is alone worthy of all praise. Revelation chapter 5. They said with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered. We won't forget that. We'll be singing about it forever. To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Yes, and very amen in Jesus' name. Any questions? Comments? Yes. So this is my first night here after eight weeks. So is this an interactive deal or are we just... Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yes. Oh. <laughs> I need... I Yes, you can be... Sorry, I need to remind. Yes. At any moment, you know, like Kyle, who just so rudely interrupted me, you can just do that. You can speak out, hey, pastor, I got a question, I got a comment, you know. Yes, I want this to be an active learning environment. <laughs> you don't get to do that, interrupt me like on Sunday when I'm preaching. This is teaching. You can interrupt me. So, yeah. Do you have like a written transcript of that, what you just said? Uh-huh. Thanks. I do. Yeah? <laughs> if, you, if you email me, I'd be happy to send you my, awesome. my all marked up crazy old Trans manuscript. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you we bet. Can listen to it. Yeah, and just again, like I said at the beginning, as a reminder, uh, if you if you're signed up, so remember, Grace Church has a podcast, and that's for all teaching, preaching that happens here. Um, so it's Grace Church Salida, whatever feed that you use, Apple, um, Spotify, we're on all those things. I use a player called Downcast, and when you go on that podcast, so usually Aaron gets it. He's fast. Usually when I send it to him, he gets it posted by Thursday during the day. Um, and so in, there's a link in the show notes for where you can go on the website because we've got a website where all the audio is as well, right on our website. Well, excuse me. We have a web page on the Grace Church website. 
Uh, and that's where you can get the PDFs. So the, the handout that you have, those PDFs, so you can go, you could go to all other seven weeks. They're up there. They're out there. You could listen to them, them if you'd like. Are you able to slow down your speech? Because <laughs> you speak really fast, and it's amazing. <laughs> I, know, I know I'm fire hydranting you sometimes. Um, if, if it makes you feel any better, my wife reminds me every week. Uh, but yes, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. I'm trying to get these themes in. Um, you know, <laughs> I, uh, yeah, part of it is because I just think, are people going to come in the summer? Because I would do this all year. I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to do it all year. Um, so if I, if I, and if I know I have the freedom to just, you know, do two weeks on the story of sacrifice, then great. But, you know, because I got I to gotta get you from Genesis to Revelation every week. <laughs> That's hard. Even in 75 minutes. <laughs> so, yeah. I'll work on being better about that. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, guys. I love y'all. God bless you. Oh, yes. Brian. And if you want to get up and you need to go, it's, it's fine. Just... Oh, man, you're going to Romans 7. I just came off of studying Romans 7 like before I walked in here. Let me tell you, my head. Yes. So here's, I, I don't have time to answer the question for all the potential options for that. Let me give you where I've landed as of uh, 4.30. Here's my current understanding of Romans 7. And it's based on our little ditty. Um, you cannot understand Romans 7 unless you very, strike that, unless you have a very good understanding of Romans 6 and Romans 8. I think the context of Romans 6 and Romans 8 helps me understand what Paul is on about in Romans 7. In Romans 6, we've heard that I have, I have become dead to sin and I'm alive in God. In Romans 6, we have an image of baptism showing and giving that visible display so that I may walk in newness of life. Something that he touches on briefly in Romans chapter 7, verse 6, right? I'm, I'm walking out. It's the spirit that by which I do this. So that in particular, verses 7 to 25, and then in Romans 8, he's going to pick back up into the the work of the Spirit in a way that he hasn't talked about in the rest of the, and won't talk about in the rest of the letter. So there's this Spirit-empowered reality of who I am in Jesus before God as a disciple of Jesus, alive to God, dead to sin, empowered by the Spirit. So that I think Romans 7, there's so much conversation and argumentation theologically, biblically. Is Paul converted or not converted? I think what's happening in Romans 7 is that Paul is writing to Roman, formerly Gentile, influenced by synagogue and Jewish people who are therefore then familiar with the law and have now come to Christ. And he's, he's got in his mind, I get you and I understand you. So I'm going to write in such a way 
that I'm almost going to take on an accurate, dramatic role of what was it like for you as the law started to enter into your sphere of understanding? What did that do in your life? What kind of problems did that create? And he's holding that in the reality of he's spoken so much, these two realms that we had, right, that we've been building in Romans. He has spoken so much, right, of sin and death in this other realm. And he's done that so much that the other problem that he has to solve in Romans 7 for these people who've been reading this letter is you might be thinking that I'm equating the law with death and with sin. So 7 to 13 is I'm going to deal with that in relationship to your experience and the reality that the law isn't equal to sin. And, in, and actually, I think my breakout would be 7 to 13 and then 13 to 25 because I think 13 is a hinge on this door that is necessary for both of them. Then in 13 to 25, now he's going to say the law isn't equal to death either. So he's going to take care of those two objections so that he can say the law is holy and righteous and good. So I'm giving you all that as a backdrop to your question because I think Paul, I think the I, so it's, it's also the first time he uses this personal pronoun as much as he's used it in, in, the, in the letter up to this point. I don't think the I is explicitly Paul. I think the I is this representative in which, now if you really want to get into the weeds, is somewhat representative of Adam, Israel, Paul, Judaism, Roman Gentile, but like humanity in other words. Um, but, but specifically, I think he's dealing with you were alive, and by you were alive, I think probably what he means by that phrase because different translations render it a little bit differently. I think another way to say that would be, I was living. I'm living along, going my merry way. I'm fine. I'm, I'm alive. Then the law comes along. So you kind of, I think you just hit on what I was going to ask you, which is, he could be, it could be referring, for example, to Adam. Oh, I, I think it could be, yeah. but I don't think it is. Where I'm landing interpretively is I... I think Paul is saying he's very much wanting to get in their skin. He wants to handle these objections and he wants to get in their skin and say, listen, I'm aware of the problems that this has created in your life. And the, and the reason I'm saying that is I just don't think where I've come to now, and I've gone back and forth on this over the years, probably most of the time I just say, I don't know. I don't know if he's converted or unconverted. Is that even the main thing? And now where I've landed this afternoon is I don't think it's an example of a converted Paul who is expressing this struggle. Here's another way to think about this. Um, and this may be giving you more than you're asking, Brian. Um, right doctrine, wrong text. You have to have that phrase in your head as a studier of the scriptures. Um, sometimes we get the, wrong doc the right doctrine, but we're arguing it from the wrong Bible text. So does Romans 7... So Romans 7 is this, this whole, you know, I, I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do and ah, who am I? And as a Christian, we go, oh, that just feels like me. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. So it's, it's telling, it's speaking to your experience, but it's not the text you should use to argue your experience as a Christian. I don't think Paul is saying, this is the life of a Christian. Yeah. Primarily, I think he's saying, this is what it was like before. And the, the key thing that really landed on me hard today was when he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because I think that's the climax. There's almost like a climax 
he gives a rejoice, like, and then he rejoices, like he stops and goes, thanks be to God. Jesus has done this. That's how I'm delivered. And then he's like, whoops, I didn't finish. And then he goes back and, and, and says one more little bit that's connected to kind of this negativity. So I think that's where he's saying that when you look at that, when you look at six and when you look at eight, you just can't look at seven and say, this is a believer. It just isn't representing what he said in six and eight and what he says in that little bit there right at the end of chapter seven. So that's where I'm landing. That's the way I'm going to end up preaching it over the next couple of weeks. Um, and, and an important bit of that actually is, uh, you say, I'm sorry, you, you pricked me on Romans 7 and now I'm bleeding all over you. Uh, I, I write tomorrow, so I'm just like ready to, <laughs> sure, let's talk about Romans 7, I'd love to. Um, I, I think what's going to be really fascinating, what I'm excited to explore, not this Sunday, but the next Sunday, once we finish it, sermon number two is going to have to do some heavy lifting on there is a reality in Salida, Colorado, that the people that we're walking amongst who don't know Jesus are not in some existential angst over the Mosaic Law. <laughs> oh, I know. Like, I just, I wish, like, I could, oh, I just don't do it. I, like, I know that's what he wants me to do, but I don't do it. And how am I going to possibly live? Could you please tell me about Jesus? They're just not doing that. So what is Romans... What application, what possible application does Romans 7 have? It very much for Paul, that's why I'm giving you the bit on, I think he has a, a very particular kind of audience in mind in Romans 7 that he's writing to, and so he can write this way, but I also still think it's applicable because it's a representation of humanity, Adam, Israel, Romans, Paul, apostles, everybody since. So what is it, what's it showing us? How, how does this help our evangelism in reaching other people? Um, I think that's going to be fun to explore. I mean, I just, I'm, this is slightly off what I want to talk about, but I would actually slightly push back about people feeling angst, maybe not so much about the Mosaic Law, but I feel like this is something that is a problem with Christians versus non-Christians. Christians, we have this word sin, and I would say the world at large doesn't recognize sin. But we have other words. Not anymore. Yeah. So, for example, when this is one thing that I always remarked on is when Chris Farley died, you know, Chris Farley mm -hmm. yeah. died, mm -hmm. um, I saw, I read all these reports, and um, and all these reports used the expression that Chris Farley was battling with his demons. Mm -hmm. Right. They used different words for what Christians would call sin. They refused to acknowledge what Christians want to call sin. But I think everybody realizes mm -hmm. that, you know, they have problems. I mean, United States isn't better than other countries, but you know, we have a large population that is dependent on depressants, for example. And we are always constant. We have problems with alcohol and other drugs, and that's the mass. Yeah, we have opioid addiction yes, that's literally destroying our country. So I, I wouldn't say that people aren't, don't realize. Oh, I didn't. I didn't say. Okay. I didn't say what you're saying. I said they're not an angst over the Mosaic Law. And so, yes, you're doing a good job as a Bible student already making that application. You're right, absolutely. And I think how Romans 7 then becomes useful is we clarify. There is a, there is a vague sense. I mean, why do people march through the streets saying, no justice, no yeah, peace? Justice. 
They want justice. Yeah, they don't they, want justice. Yeah, no, they all these things. <laughs> well, no, no not, not by what you mean by that, but to so Brian's they, point, they, they, they do. And so it, the issue that I think how Romans 7 comes into that con- conversation is, is for us as a, as a family to help build each other up and encourage each other. We do have the answers to the existential angst of our culture. Um, and we have to figure out creative ways to connect those dots for them. There, there, are, there is a standard, there is a, and, that's, and what's interesting, I think that's where we can get into the weeds of Romans 7 when it says it increased rebellion, right? That's what we see. It's like with our kids, the more we tell them what not to do, the more they want to do that thing that we're telling them not to do. No, let, let's let's do this. Let's kind of just end this. I'll end, okay. I'll end the recording, the podcast, and yeah, Brian, come come on up and whoever wants to come up and talk, and and then I'll stop this. Thanks for listening.